All right, so are you guys ready to learn about inherited skin disease? No, because uh, today we're going to talk about viral exanthems instead, because this is another topic that's uh, near and dear to my heart and something that I, uh, uh, I speak on occasionally. So hopefully it's an okay way to finish up your afternoon and uh, you know, we'll see. If I, can, if I can achieve a less than 50% nodding off rate, I'll figure success. But uh, it's a, no, it's a treat to be here. It's a great venue. I, I'm really impressed by it. And um, any, any conference that has ice cream in the break is sort of a, a winner for me. So I was, I was that nerd in there taking pictures to show my kids, like, look, they have ice cream during the break. Work is fun. But anyways, um, so we're going to talk about viral exanthems because you can't uh, be in dermatology without recognizing viral exanthems, and there, there's a whole bunch of different pearls in this talk. Some of them are scattered throughout the talk, some of them are in a slide at the end. I don't have any relationships with industry, um, good or bad really, just none, so nothing to worry about there. So what do we mean by exanthem? That's, uh, I like to be clear on definitions because I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I, the term viral exanthem is something I use quite freely in my practice to explain away some of those rashes that I don't really know what they are. And so um, it, typically when I use the word exanthem, I'm, I'm saying that I'm, I'm seeing an eruption on the skin um, that is probably a symptom of some general disease, and usually that's something infectious. And, uh, and uh, we can certainly have exanthems associated with bacterial infections, but viral infections are the classic ones. And an enanthem, an enanthem, is the same process but on a mucosal surface. So it doesn't have to be in the mouth, but most classically it is. So we're going to start out, um, because I think this is an illustrative case, and, uh, and, and sort of, you know, gives a flavor for sort of an overarching concept that we're going to talk about and touch on throughout the talk. Um, and this is a two-year-old that I saw, uh, I think this would have been last year, uh, from urgent care for what they thought might be hand, foot, and mouth disease. But they said, boy, this is really severe. Um, he'd been healthy, uh, but his rash had been uh, spreading rapidly over the last few days. He had no other health problems on no, no other medicine. The family was Swahili speaking, which always adds a little bit of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, one additional layer of complexity to the visit. So this is what we saw on his hands, bilateral palms, bilateral feet, this is what we saw around the mouth. Notice the almost uh, uh, slightly radiating furrows, but crusting, eroded areas both around the mouth and then also around the nares. A little bit scattered up on the face as well. And this is what we saw on the groin, umbilicated vesicles, really. Um, scattered throughout the groin with erosions around the penis and the penile shaft, and, and so, um, First of all, just by a show of hands, or uh, let's see, is this hand, foot, and mouth disease? Raise your hand if you think yes. I guess that's a, I kind of loaded that question maybe, but <laughs> all right. I didn't think so either. So anybody want to shout out what they think it might be? What enters your head when you see this rash? What's that? Kawasaki's, okay, uh, rash in the groin. Kawasaki's isn't often vesicular like this, but groin rash in a kid that's otherwise sick, and especially stuff around the mouth, Kawasaki should pop into your head. You should talk yourself out of it. Anything else? Syphilis. Syphilis, wow, that's a good one. No, but the, with, his, uh, with his ethnicity, so syphilis, a great imitator, can look like anything, probably should always enter your head for any patient you see. Yeah. EM, okay, that's a good thought. The rash on the palms and soles, a little bit targetoid, vesicular areas elsewhere. That's good. I like that one. What about umbilicated vesicles? Is that a buzzword for any of you? Molluscum? Or molluscum are more umbilicated papules that are solid. What about vesicles? Varicella, good, or herpes family virus infections, HSV, VZV. So I looked at this kid and I thought, this is eczema herpeticum. He's got disseminated herpes virus infection. Put him on a cyclovir, he got better. I thought, boy, John, you're a really good pediatric dermatologist. You, you know, because I clearly didn't think it was hand, foot, and mouth disease. And that's, I think, you guys all picked up on that. So it was then when we started having multiple other children with the exact same looking rash over about a two to three week period that I started thinking maybe I wasn't quite as smart of a uh, pediatric dermatologist. And 
uh, the local pediatricians who I work closely with started telling me, boy, we're seeing a lot of this hand, foot, and mouth disease. It's really weird. It's not quite like normal hand, foot, and mouth. And the stuff I was seeing, I was like, you know, I was seeing all these kids. I'm like, it's like hand, foot, and mouth because it's hands and feet, perioral, um, but it's more extensive and it's more vesicular. And what's the deal with this rash? And so this is what the deal was. So this is a new type of Coxsackie viral infection called Coxsackie virus A6. And it had been reported last year um, in, uh, I think the first outbreaks were in Alabama, and then spread through several other states. And it's an in interesting Coxsackie viral infection because the severity of the rash is worse. The children often have worse rash, vesicular rash, fever, and a significant proportion of them end up shedding their nails. One of the, one of the pearls of this talk that I didn't list out on a, um, on a slide, but you should always think about when a parent brings in the kid who's losing all of their nails at once, one of the things you ask them is, been sick recently or did they have hand, foot, and mouth disease within the last month or two? Because Coxsackie viral infections will do that. And Coxsackie A6 is uh, proving notorious for that. Why is this an interesting topic? Well, this is not new. In fact, this is something that has spread to us starting elsewhere in the globe. And that's one of my overarching themes for the talk, is we can no longer get away with just knowing the exanthems that we've all grown up with because there's all sorts of new stuff on the horizon. Our chair was just talking this week about how with, with the warming temperatures, we're seeing new species of mosquito traveling into, previous, uh, into areas where they were pre previously were not. Mosquitoes that can carry things like dengue fever or other uh, tropical-borne viruses that we're not used to seeing the rashes of. In the case of A6, it started in Taiwan, spread to France, Japan, and is now in the US. And there was a major outbreak um, in the Midwest this past year. So uh, something to be aware of. So I'm going to skip this slide. It'll be in the handout. We'll talk about this more. So what about classic hand, foot, and mouth disease? Well, I, I figured if I was going to bring it up, we ought to at least talk about it just briefly. Why, what, why did I not think that was hand, foot, and mouth disease? So typically, you have these epidemics of hand, foot, and mouth disease, most commonly Coxsackie virus A16 or Enterovirus 71. There's some thought that the Enterovirus 71 outbreaks tend to be a little more severe. It's very contagious very short incubation time, spread through uh, its enterovirus, so nasal or oral secretions, fecal material, things like that. Um, and you get rapid viremia and a fairly rapid infection. It cycles, like a lot of these viral infections, for reasons that I at least don't understand, but if any of you have insight, let me know, there's cycles to these outbreaks. In the case of hand, foot, and mouth, it tends to be about every three years. Um, it tends to be worse in the younger kids, not so bad if an adult picks it up. Rarely there are complications from it. Most of the time it's just a nuisance. Uh, there can be a prodrome, uh, abdominal pain, sore mouth, and things like that. Usually the oral ulcers, this is one of our rashes where there's an ananthem that precedes the exanthem. And in that case, you'll have the, the oral ulceration, sometimes very frank herpangina that's quite severe. Um, and they're painful. Usually, though, they're just few in number, only about five or 10. And then you get the classic exanthem of hand, foot, and mouth. And th that, this is what was different about the, the A6 kids. They didn't have these nice sort of uh, linear oval vesicles scattered on their hands and feet. Their hand and foot ulceration, or, or lesions, excuse me, weren't ulcerated. They looked a little bit more like erythema multiforme. So anyhow, just a nice little review of hand, foot, and mouth disease. But by and large, this is the kind of viral exanthem that I see most commonly. And I'm guessing, you know, if you, if you have sort of an unrestricted practice and are seeing kids from, you know, just kind of walking in the door, you see this stuff, sort of a blotchy erythematous eruption in a kid that maybe had a fever and a little bit of a runny nose a few days before. He noticed the kid's got his shirt off because he's been playing outside. When he gets hotter, it stands out more. And this is the kind of, this is the, my wastebasket viral exanthem case for you because I think it's helpful to just have a concept of what viral exanthems can look like. I have no idea what virus this is. This could be a bunch of them. There are you know, hundreds of viruses that can look like this. But being able to, to tell the parents, or in this case your wife, that uh, the child is, <laughs> Um, the child is likely to be just fine and this isn't something very severe and it's going to go away in five to seven days or, or the like um, is, is usually very reassuring and, and that's what it did. 
Now, there is going to come a time in, in probably the next five to 10 years where we have a much better idea of what, that, what virus triggered that exanthem. We're getting much better lab testing now. Now, it, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was based on serology. Now we've moved to the DNA level. And we can take samples from children like my son there and run them on a, on a gene chip and figure out what viruses they're infected with. The thing that's interesting is now that we're able to start doing this, at least in cases of, of like respiratory illness, what we're finding in the pediatric population is not one viral infection. We're finding two, three, sometimes four viral infections, either simultaneous or daisy chaining one right after the other. And so I think what we're going to find as we get smarter is that this is a very, very complex picture, and perhaps certain exanthems are related to a sequence of viral infections. We're also, uh, and, and rather than just one specific one, we're also finding that um, one viral infection will trigger reactivation or sensitization towards another viral infection. So it's a, going to end up being a much more complex picture, I think, than the simple you know, get you know, get Coxsackie A16 equals hand, foot, and mouth disease picture that, that we'd like it to be. So this is just uh, the, one of the common charts that's out there. I thought this was interesting just because it, it lists a bunch of different enteroviruses and the exanthems that are reported with them and the things I draw your attention to. So let's see, is this, there we go. I don't know if you can see that. So here's A16, it can produce a Giannotti Crosti-like eruption. Here's Echo 2, it can make a rubelliform eruption. Here's Echo 11, it can make a vesicular eruption, just like A4, which can make a widespread vesicular eruption. There are plenty of these uh, different viruses that can make exanthems that look like better known ones. So you can have enteroviruses that look like rubella and enteroviruses that look like varicella. So it's important to keep an open mind a little bit when you're seeing some of these kids. Not everything that looks like primary varicella is primary varicella, especially in this day and age, now that they're all vaccinated. Okay, but that said, there are classic exanthems that we all should know or at least be aware of. And I, I gave this talk, oh, I guess it was last year, a little less than a year ago at a pediatrics meeting in Vermont and a very senior pediatrician, very well-known person, right before I got up on stage, says, well, I'm really excited to see your talk. I hope you don't talk about some of these really common diseases, you know, that we don't see anymore because, no, you know, there's no point in reviewing all of that. And I was thinking, oh, no, because I've got this case in the talk. But I think there's merit in reviewing it, and we'll explain why. So this is a five-year-old who comes in. Parents say he's been feeling bad for several days, got a cough, got really red, watery eyes, and a really runny nose. And the rash started on the head and now is spread everywhere, and this kid just looks sick. Anybody have any guess as to what this is? Measles. Great. It's measles. And this guy, this pediatrician's like, I hope you don't talk about stuff like measles. We never see that anymore. I'm like, oh man, that's like the first case I've got, you know? Um, so, measles. Why do we need to know about measles? And this is my argument, and was my argument to him, because measles still shows up. And if you don't know what it looks like, you're going to miss it because there have been outbreaks of measles around the globe because we are no longer isolated populations. We, are, we share stuff with Taiwan and with France and with Asia and Africa and all these other places. So we don't have the luxury of just ignoring what's going on everywhere else. We've got to know about it all. Um, Measles is uh, a paramyxovirus, so you get respiratory cell, uh, respiratory spread, respiratory epithelial infection that spreads from there. This is one of the most contagious diseases known, and so that's one of the one of the important reasons to know about it. Because if you identify it, you got to isolate them. Incubates for 10 to 14 days. Interestingly, the original measles genotypes of the Americas and Australia are extinct. They think they no longer exist. So when people are getting measles in the Americas, it's usually imported. So of that case that I showed you, here's one of your pearls. What aspect of that clinical presentation is most characteristic or suggestive of measles? So I've got a vote for B. Anybody else? C. The answer is actually C. And uh, now everybody thinks B because we, all of our textbooks talk about this classic cephalocaudad rash. And the truth is that the cephalocaudad rash is very characteristic in measles, but it's not always measles. Other viruses can do that. 
but that combination of that clinical picture with that really pronounced prodrome of that rhinoconjunctivitis is measles until, you, until proven otherwise. So in developed countries, measles isn't that big of a deal. Um, it's got a, you know, there are complications, about 10% of cases, but most patients do well. But in developing countries, it continues to be a big deal. And in fact, in, there's some interesting numbers, and I thought this, there was a, uh, last year, a New England Journal article that reviewed measles eradication efforts that really drove the point home. Starting in 2000, measles killed o uh, over 700,000 children a year worldwide. And usually it's associated with malnutrition. Uh, and and post-measles, as we'll talk about in a second, you get an immunosuppression, so they get infected and die. With vaccination efforts in Africa, especially over the eight years from 2000 to 2008, the measles incident mar incidents markedly dropped. And it was heralded as a success story for uh, vaccination campaigns. Problem is, with all the political unrest in Africa, most of those uh, uh, vaccination campaigns were suspended and incidence rates are starting to go back up again. So there's a lot of worry in the global health community that that's going to end up being a problem. In the United States, we don't have a whole lot. About 222 cases in 2011, and that really limited to about 17 outbreaks that were well over half the patients. Most of the people that get it are unvaccinated or you don't know their vaccination status, so they probably weren't. 90% were clearly imported. The cases actually came in from other countries. And in the case of the United States cases, France, Italy, Romania are major sources, and France continues to be a, a major source of measles. And the patients overall did well. But again, this, these are the cases that got diagnosed, right? I mean, these are the ones that where somebody looks at it, says, I think that might be measles. They do the testing, and the state authorities get, get uh, um, brought in. Who knows how many cases were out there that never got picked up? So you got to know what you're looking for. We talked about the prodrome, so you've got the fever, the, the cough, and that rhinoconjunctivitis, those really red injected eyes. It's very significant. Then there's the, the enanthems of most of these illnesses are not that specific, but in the case of measles, as I'll show you in a second, the enanthem, it can be very helpful if you know what to look for and if you catch them at the right time. And this is the so-called coplic spots, these little gray-white papules on the buccal mucosa that show up about a day or two before the skin rash happens. There's just a little study, and I just put these numbers in for you, um, looking at the efficacy of coplic spots, looking at sort of sensitivity and specificity. And um, they looked pretty, they actually looked pretty good for being sensitive or, and, uh, uh, but especially specific in the case, uh, in suspected cases of measles. So looking for coplic spots or remembering, hey, I need to look in their mouth um, can be helpful if you notice those gray-white papules. It's not the case with every enanthem, but in the case of measles. Now, um, then you get this exanthem, as we talked about, cephalocaudad spread, so starts often around the hairline or behind the ears and then moves down from there. Kind of spreads over two to four days and then fades in the same order in which it presented. Um, you get these really bright erythematous macules that then somewhat coalesce. Um, the, one of the, when I gave this talk in Vermont, actually, one of my co-panelists was somebody who'd worked for the CDC for a while investigating measles outbreaks, because one of my questions had been, you know, how specific is the rash? Because the, I've certainly, I've seen kids that look like they have a measles-like rash, but they don't have any of the other features. And her comment was, well, when she was investigating the measles outbreaks, she could tell the kids with measles just from the doorway, but it was the combination of factors. They not only had that perfect rash, but they were sick, they were febrile, their eyes were red, their nose was runny, and in the middle of, a, of an epidemic of measles or a big outbreak, if you've got that clinical scenario, it's you know measles, 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 one, two, three. So. There are atypical versions of measles. Those can be much harder to diagnose. And then, of course, the complications. The most common or most important one being secondary infection because measles causes a sort of profound immunosuppression. So afterwards, you're more susceptible to infections. Um, so what's our role at the front line, especially in the dermatology world? Be suspicious. Recognize the clinical scenario that measles tends to present with in, in classic cases. Think about your travelers. Always ask a travel history if you, if you think about it. And if you're worried about it, you've got to isolate them and contact the health department until it's ruled out. 
Vaccinate your eligible patients. The CDC is now recommending, um, especially if patients are planning to travel internationally, a more a stepped up and more aggressive vaccination campaign. Um, for kids that are a year old or older, they think they should get two MMR doses separated by at least 28 days. So if, they're, if you, the family knows they're going to a measles endemic area and taking their kid with them, they recommend getting that MMR double-dosed fairly aggressively. There was a lot of concern with the Euro 2012 games in the Summer Olympics in London that we were going to see massive measles outbreaks, but um, the efforts, the prevention efforts seemed to stem that off and it wasn't too bad. So now I will show you this case. So here's a child who presents with this sort of slightly blanchable macular eruption, trunk, but scattered elsewhere sort of has shown up over, the, over this day or two. The mother is very worried um, because the rash is continuing to spread and wants to know what it might be. And so I give you this picture and then this one, and I'm curious if anybody out there has any guesses or wants to throw out any thoughts about what this might be. Is there a high fever? No, low grade. Did the fever start when the rash comes? Yeah. What's that? Roseola. Good. Uh, it wasn't super high. It was kind of a low-grade fever. Not that, as we'll talk about when we talk about roseola, that's not, that doesn't mean it wasn't, but good. So roseola is a good guess. My only other comment here is one of my lessons always in a dermatology talk is use the whole slide. I think I heard it. Holler it out. Good. Right here, it's a vaccine reaction. So you can see this big bruise right here. This was a rock hard nodule almost on this kid's thigh. Sorry, the pointer's dying. But, um, so the kid got this big rock hard reaction and then several days later broke out in this rash. So um, this child had gotten an MMR vaccine and so my question to you all is which component of the MMR vaccine typically causes rashes? Any guesses? Good. So in dermatology, we always think about the preservatives. Anybody else? What's that? Vehicle. Okay, good. What's that? I always, I actually, so that, the reason I even ask this question is, one, it's kind of interesting. Two, I actually thought it was probably rubella. That was always my thought, and I was wrong, so... Um, it's measles. That's why I put it right after measles. So, um, the, the, so that is measles um, in my daughter, actually. Um, so, um, uh, the, and so that's the only real measles that I've seen that I've diagnosed. Um, and it's an attenuated measles, but um, the most adverse reactions of the MMR vaccine are due to the measles component. About 5 to 15% get fever and about 5% get rash. And so, um, just something to be aware of. It was interesting because she did. She got a really intense inflammatory reaction to the vaccination site. So I figure that kid's really immune. But uh, um, she, uh, she, it was kind of an interesting rash. Faded over about five days, and that was it. So it's the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella. So I figured we'd talk about the other two components of the vaccine just to just to uh, complete the trifecta. So mumps. Um, is a single-stranded RNA virus, a much smaller virus, uh, also respiratory droplet spread, a uh, little bit longer period of viremia, and then once it, once it spreads to multiple tissues, it uh, gets into the lymph nodes and causes that massive lymph node inflammation, peritonitis, and the like. Now, why do we need to know about mumps? Uh, who here has seen mumps? Few people. I've only seen a case or two. Um, or had it, right? I could say that. I don't know if that counts or not. I think it should, personally. But um, so, uh, so why do we need to know about it? Because, again, just like measles, the mumps incidence is increasing. There have been outbreaks in a variety of places. There was a large outbreak at university in Iowa. Typically, it's older patients when you get the outbreaks now. Not kids, but um, late teenagers, college-age kids, over 20. You're infectious from two days before you get symptoms to nine days after the onset. And it, you're pretty contagious during that period of time. So when you get a mumps outbreak, it spreads fairly rapidly in the right population. 
So this has actually been a problem. This was such a big problem amongst the young adults in Canada that the Canadian government actually started a um, public education campaign to try and stop the spread. And I thought, I thought it was, you know, there are a lot of take-home points in this that reflect, you know, uh, greater insight into human nature, but I thought that, you know, so here for the, for the women, for the young girls, they're targeting, you know, that's Jill, Jill got mumps and then she went and partied with her friends because she didn't feel that bad. Now they all have it and they hate Jill. So, you know, it's, it's kind of sexist really. It's like, okay, the motivator for women is going to be that their friends hate them if they give them mumps. But then it's like, so for the guys, well, obviously, I guess guys don't care if their friends don't like them because this was the one for the guys. <laughs> right? So anyhow, um, that, that, I don't even need to say a pearl there. That's just going to be etched in your memory. For, <laughs> sorry. But anyhow, so but important enough that they mounted a public education campaign over it. So... Um, the parotitis that, that, uh, uh, that is really one of the most pronounced findings. It can be unilateral or bilateral. They can also have multiple salivary glands affected, um, and it tends to get better after about a week. But importantly, about 20% of mumps infections are asymptomatic. So that's one of my other pearls for you all that's not codified in any place, but I, I think you should always be aware of is a viral illness is just in any individual patient is part of a potential spectrum of reactions that you can see. And that's also true for the exanthems. So in the case of mumps, not every kid that gets mumps gets something that's actually even clinically identifiable. About 20% of them are perfectly asymptomatic, minimal fever, nobody ever notices, yet they're still just as contagious as the next one. So something to think about. Why do we worry about mumps? Why do we even vaccinate against it? Well, about 15% of mumps infections will have some CNS involvement. In males, you can have the orchitis, which you'll never forget uh, now. Um, and uh, although uh, most, it's very rare to have true oligo or, or asthenospermia from those, um, they can have testicular atrophy afterwards. And very rarely there's deafness or, or more severe outcomes. Okay, and then lastly, rubella. Why do we talk about rubella? Well, we'll, uh, we'll explain in a minute, partly because it's got skin findings, partly because it's in the MMR vaccine. Um, it was first described in the German literature in the 1800s. That's why it was called German measles. Rubella means little red. That little red is in, ref in um, relative relationship to measles. Basically, rubella was the little red rash compared to measles, which was the big red rash. So um, uh, rubella is a very small single-stranded RNA virus. Uh, respiratory droplets spread again, and um, you, uh, it's, but it's contagiousness. It is not contagious in the same way that measles is. It's not quite as contagious as measles is, but the patients are most contagious right around the time that rash appears. Um, now, importantly, up to half of cases of rubella are infectious but asymptomatic. So yet another one of these infections that tends to have a high proportion of asymptomatic cases. And this is how I remind our residents that it's a toga virus. Toga, toga, toga. Okay. Um, there's a broad differential for rubella in this day and age, especially in a day and age uh, where some of the tropical, like the flaviviruses like dengue, um, may be making their way towards us. Dengue rashes can look about a lot like rubella rashes. And um, there are a few others as well. So uh, there's a broad differential because the rash of rubella is not necessarily that specific. Rubella also can have a prodrome, kind of a typical viral thing, fever, headache, malaise. Lymphadenopathy sometimes is quite pronounced with rubella, uh, sometimes fairly striking in that prodromal period. That, and that can be one of the clues, just like rhinoconjunctivitis is a clue for measles, that perhaps you've got rubella but again, can be subclinical. There is an enanthem that's described little red papules, especially on the soft palate, the so-called Forsheimer spots, but it's not diagnostic. If you look in the mouths of kids with a variety of infectious illnesses, you'll often see these little red papules. The exanthem, which we were talking about, again, it's a cephalocaudad rash. It starts around the hairline and the ears, posterior ears, and spreads uh, down from there. It just tends to be less intense, less noticeable. It's often the pictures of rubella rashes, it's harder to see the rash because it is the little red rash. Occasionally it's itchy. It fades a little more quickly than the measles rash 
and um, and also fades in sort of the same way, uh, the same pattern in which it uh, developed. And the rash disappears as the uh, with the immune response and the lack of and the the cessation of your viremia. So when the rubella rash fades away, you're no longer contagious. But while you've got the rash, you're contagious. Okay. So why do we even vaccinate for rubella if, it, if it's not that big of a deal to the patient that gets it? And there, there are really two reasons. One, if you're, interestingly, if you're a postpubertal female, there's a relatively high incidence of arthralgias and arthritis. I think this is fascinating, and I don't understand it at all. Um, but uh, this and uh, both rubella and another virus that we'll talk about can do this. And why it's so discriminatory in the postpubertal female, I don't know, but somebody should figure that out because there's got to be something important there. And then most importantly is congenital rubella syndrome. So if a, if a pregnant female becomes infected with rubella, especially if it's in the first 16 weeks, especially the first 10 weeks of pregnancy, then that infant can, uh, can become infected with rubella. And rubella is a teratogen. Rubella will cause organ abnormalities and developmental uh, abnormalities in the fetus. So that is why we vaccinate. Um, in the, uh, if infants are exposed in the first trimester, up to 85% get infected. After the, after the second trimester, once organ development is done, it's much lower risk, and by the third trimester, it's really probably not important, actually. So um, this is why we vaccinate. What does congenital rubella syndrome look like? Why do we care about it? Well, the, there's a, quite a variety, quite a range in terms of severity of the symptoms. Deafness is one of the most common findings and um, can be the only manifestation. And there are plenty of cases of, of mild hearing loss, moderate to severe hearing loss in, in children that's congenital that is triggered by uh, rubella exposure during pregnancy. But of course, cataracts, congenital heart disease, CNS abnormalities are some of the other findings. Um, uh, so um, this will be in the handout. You don't really need to review that, but this is why we vaccinate for it. Vaccination for rubella is very robust, and usually you're, you've developed lifelong immunity after that first one. Okay, so now we have a 10-year-old female shows up with this particular rash. Anybody want to holler it out? Good, 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 good. You guys are on top of it. Not that sleepy. Um, and so fifth disease or slap cheek syndrome or erythema uh, infectiosum is caused by parvovirus B19. This is the, now it's actually no longer the only parvovirus known to infect humans, but um, at, when I put this, it's still the only really important one. Another respiratory droplet spread virus, interestingly, this one also has a cyclical pattern of outbreaks with peaks about every six years or so, supposedly. Uh, and, and individual community epidemics that last around three to six months. I don't know if anybody has any idea why that is. Um, seroprevalence increases by age, so that by 15 years of age, by over half of the people you test will have had it. There is uh, the agent that the virus uses to get inside you is something called globicide, which is the erythrocyte P antigen. And interestingly, um, the, so if you genetically lack this, you don't get parvovirus B19. It can't get in you, so you don't get infected with it. Um, and the, the, this uh, globicide is expressed um, quite a bit on developing red blood cells, erythrocyte progenitor cells. So it probably explains why parvovirus B19 tends to hit the bone marrow so aggressively. And interestingly, it's also expressed on, on uh, fetal cardiac tissue. And so one of the things we always think about about Parvo B19 is if, if you have fetal infection, you can get something called high drops. You can get basically heart failure, high output heart failure in, in the fetus, which has always been thought to be due to the fact that the virus causes the baby to become anemic in utero and the heart's pumping that much harder to try and deliver oxygen. But actually there may be some direct cardiotoxicity that this virus is capable of because of the unique um, expression pattern of globicide on the fetal heart. So the prodrome is mild. Uh, there's a variable in anthem, but the exanthem, this classic exanthem we recognize and you guys recognize so rapidly is called uh, erythema infectiosum. You get um, it, the presence or the development of this exanthem in um, infected patients is most common in that sort of adolescent age group, you know, four to 10 years of age. Um, younger than that or older than that, they don't always exhibit the classical features. You get that bright red erythema of the cheeks with the sparing of the, of the uh, nasolabial fold there. 
in the perioral areas, and that breaks out first, and then after a few days you get the sort of this lacy reticulate rash on the extremities. Um, now, the rash lasts from one to three weeks, but it varies a lot depending on body temperature and, and cutaneous vasodilation. So one of my pearls, which is summarized at the end of this talk, is this is one of the ways that you save yourself an enormous amount of trouble and enormous amount of parental worry and phone calls and all the like, which is that you've got to warn the parents that the rash will look like it's going away, and then they'll put the kid in the bath, or the kid will run outside and play, or do something to get hot and sweaty, and all of a sudden the parents will freak out because the rash will be back. And you've got to warn them that that happens because it's never went away. It just is a rash that shows up depending on, on cutaneous blood flow. And so if they're getting really hot and they're really vasodilated, you're going to see it more. And if they get vasoconstricted, it goes away. So uh, you'd be surprised how many phone calls that will save you. Parvo B19 is another virus that can cause arthritis or arthralgias in postpubertal females. Don't know why. And um, get, that can be quite severe. And then if you have a condition where your body is already struggling to make enough red blood cells because you've inherited a, a hemoglobinopathy like sickle cell or thalassemia, when you, if you're already kind of on edge with your red blood cell production and something like Parvo comes along and wipes it out, you can uh, have uh, aplastic episodes, and some of which can be quite significant. Now, there are other exanthems that parvo can cause. Parvo is one of these viruses that, you know, erythema infectiosum is the most classic one we associate with it, but there, there are other findings that should make you at least, where parvo should, like, cross your mind. One of which is just sort of generalized petechial rashes. And I don't know about you guys, but every year I see a few of these patients where they come in, with, you, know, you walk in the room, and you're like, holy smoke, you know, you've got a really diffuse petechial eruption, but you talk to the patient, they're really not that sick, you're not really worried that something bad's going on, and you know, you sort of think, well, it's probably viral. Well, it's often parvoviral, but doesn't have to be. Um, so, and some of them will start out like this and then go on to develop, develop more classic erythema infectiosum afterwards, so be aware of that. The other um, syndrome to be aware of is this called so-called papular purpuric gloves and socks syndrome, where you get this really pronounced erythema, swelling, and sometimes petechial eruption, just on the hands and feet especially. This is um, also Parvo B19 most commonly, although a few other viruses like Coxsackie and HHV6 or 7 have been reported in association. This tends to be a little bit older patients than the erythema infectiosum, so these are usually pubertal patients, teenagers and the like. Um, and the, one of the other big differences between this and typical parvo rash, the typical parvo rash actually develops when you get um, your immunoglobulin, your IgG, developing against the parvovirus. So you, the Ig uh, immunoglobulin develops, and you break out in the rash, and you're no longer viremic. So in the case of parvo, when they're rashy, they're no longer contagious. In the case of papular purpuric gloves and socks, however, they are still contagious when the rash is present. So a little difference there. And this is just another uh, couple cases that I thought were illustrative and nice to see. So really kind of marked acral hands and feet, uh, petechial erythematous eruption. Okay. There is, you'll read reports in some of the books, they'll talk about a juvenile form that is, uh, that is typically Parvo B19 negative. I, I haven't reviewed these cases individually in detail. I, I'm not so sure if I would even lump it in the same group, but just be aware you'll, you might read about that. But I'd need to review, I would need to review pictures of those cases before I would buy it. Um, so the rash tends to resolve over one to two weeks like most viral infections. Your treatment is symptomatic. And uh, there are rare cases where you'll get persistent B19 infection, and those tend to manifest as, manifest as kind of episodic fevers, episodic rash, and aplastic episodes or anemias. In those patients, the, the treatment is IVIG, and sometimes then when you go ahead and give them the IVIG, all of a sudden they get a really florid erythema infectiosum because, again, it's the immunoglobulin that precipitates that clinical finding. Okay. Roseola was brought up earlier. Uh, roseola is caused by human herpes virus 6 or 7. It's a very classic exanthem of childhood and one that 
um, is actually sometimes hard to find pictures of. I waited with, with like my camera, you know, my camera card empty and my batteries fully charged every time my kids got high fevers and I've yet to get a roseola picture out of them. I don't know what good they are, you know, it's just, um, but, uh, um, so it, and and but that that's an illustrative point just to remind you that the the rash of roseola is, is sort of evanescent and does not occur in every case. These virus the roseola viruses I think are more interesting just in their own capabilities as a virus rather than the actual roseola rash. They're they're uh, they don't really get I think the respect they're probably due. Um, so they're trophic for CD4 cells. So the, the viruses actually get into your CD4 T cells and spread around your body that way. That's interesting. Um, you're viremic from about two days before your fever starts to, um, uh, to right when that rash starts. And when you defervesce and break out in that rash, you're no longer viremic uh, with these viruses. They remain latent in a variety of interesting places, like your salivary glands or your peripheral blood cells or your brain or your genitourinary tract, and they may reactivate an immunosuppression. So one of, the, one of the theories out there, I'm sure you guys have seen patients with the so-called DRESS syndrome who have that big drug reaction. Very often, uh, or in some of those cases, you'll see HHV6 viremia at the same time. And the theory is that when the patients get immunosuppressed, all this latent HHV6 reactivates. The other thing that it can do, interestingly, is, in, is integrate into your chromosomes. So there are babies that have been described who break out with a very characteristic roseola infection on like day one or two of life where they were not exposed to anybody with roseola. And the theory is that actually what happened in those babies is the virus that they inherited in their chromosomes came out of the chromosomes and spread and made an infection, a congenital viral infection um, in, that was transmitted in their DNA. Kind of spooky, I think. The other thing that, they, that these viruses like, remember, they're trophic to brain. And so we always, you know, we think, oh, high fevers. These kids get a really high fever. And, you know, so if you get a really high fever, you're more at risk for febrile seizures. Well, it may be the temperature, but it may also be that the virus is actually infecting the brain tissue. So the infections with roseola tend to be between six months and three years. Um, and most kids have had it by the time they're a year old. It's very, very common. Uh, only about 25% of roseola infections actually get the rash. And at least 50% of kids that get roseola or that get HHV 6 or 7 are afebrile and asymptomatic. So a little something to remember there. This is sort of the exanthem. Um, with defervescence, you get these sort of rose pink macules that on the trunk and and uh, it tends to be more central rather than acral, and it fades in a few days, and that's about that. Um, complications are, are, as we've discussed, but usually minimal. There is, of course, the, the, um, the sort of the hypothesis out there that HHV6 or 7 are also causative for pityriasis rosea, and so it's always worth remembering uh, the appearance of pityriasis rosea with the Herald patch and then the more classic rash that breaks out. We're seeing a fair bit of it. You guys seeing it now? Yeah, we are too. So tis the season. Um, and so always remember, I, I, this is always one of my teaching points about PR is looking for that Colorado scale. So remember there can be variants to PR. So you've got your classic Christmas tree ones, but then there's inverse PR where it tends to be more, um, not on the extremities, not on the trunk, more in the folds. There's acral PR sometimes where they get it's like the opposite. They get more of an acral reaction sparing the central part. And then there are other variants like papular, hemorrhagic, and the like. So um, keep sometimes the only clue or the thing that really cements it as PR is that finding a couple of those lesions with that classic Colorado scale that helps you really sell yourself on it. Um, and as was brought up before, in the case of PR, if, you, if you've got a sexually active patient who did not have a Herald patch, or if there's acral involvement, palm and sole involvement, you gotta talk yourself out of secondary syphilis, always. Okay, this is a 16-month-old boy, had a cold recently, showed up with this rash for about a week and it appears to be spreading red bumps on the cheeks, on the arms and the legs and the behind. What do we think about this rash? Yay, good. So what is the most common cause of Giannotti Crosti syndrome or papular acrodermatitis of childhood in the United States? Just holler it out. 
Great. It is Epstein-Barr virus. And anybody know what virus was, uh, that was causative of it when Giannotti and Krosti first described it? So this is the reason for that question, in, in, in the, because Giannotti and Krosti obviously are Italian, and it was hepatitis B, actually. So in Europe, um, for many years, when this, after this was first described, these kids all got tested for hepatitis, and in the States, they never found it. And what they found in the States is that it's Epstein-Barr. But it, when it was first described, it, um, and in Italy, it's still, uh, Hep B is still a common association. Um, but other viruses can do it, as we'll, as we'll talk about in a minute, as can immunizations. And so um, uh, keep that in mind. You t often will have a prodrome when it's virally related. Most of the time, these are younger children you know, uh, seven, six, five, uh, or, or less. Sometimes they'll have systemic findings, but usually it's just the rash. A lot of the time they're very happy otherwise. The rash itself, though, can be quite striking. With the, and what, this is one of those viral rashes that the clue is in the pattern, because the actual individual lesions, if you, once you see enough of these, can vary. And they can be these very fine, very light, erythematous pink papules, or they can be bright red, big, beefy, juicy, no, almost nodules in, at times, and some of them look pretty worrisome. They're, sometimes these kids will come in because somebody thinks they're, they're vesicles, actually. They're so juicy, they're like pseudovesicular. And um, the, the uh, other important point about the Giannotti Crosti rash is duration. Average is two to three weeks, but they can go even over two months. And so this is one of those rashes, again, it's like the parvo rash. You gotta coach the patients and kind of get them to expect the worst. I tell people, I'm like, sometimes it's rare, but sometimes this rash will last for months. And so, um, anyhow. Um, this is just a recent article that'll be in, in the handout um, that uh, just discusses the various vaccinations that have been reported to cause giannotti Crosti syndrome. And uh, very recently, um, H1N1 was reported, H1N1 vaccinations were reported to cause it. A variety of things can do it. So this is a, this is a viral exanthem that is not necessarily indicative of any one virus, most commonly EBV, but a bunch of other things can do it. So um, more of a phenotype. As is this, which is called unilateral lateral thoracic exanthem. So Giannotti Crosti and, and unilateral lateral thoracic exanthem are both characteristic viral exanthems, but they can be caused by a variety of viruses, and they're characteristic because of their patterning. And in dermatology, we all get comfortable with patterning, and um, this is a really striking one. So um, it tends to be younger kids, again, but a little, it can be a little bit older. It's been reported up to around 10 years of age, but I, most of the ones I see are two or three or around in there. Um, maybe a little more common in females. Again, Prodrome can occur. Sometimes that you'll get a GI history with this one that you may not get with the others, but that's not consistent. Um, the exanthem most commonly breaks out in the axilla first, although it can, be, can break out in the inguinal area. And it starts on one side and kind of spreads on that side of the body. It can, the other thing, just like the giannotti Crosti rash can vary, so can you, the ULE rash. It can be really eczematous, or it can be really papular, uh, or even a mix kind of the, two, of the two. So the individual lesion morphology is not as helpful as is the distribution. So this is really one of those where you make it as you walk in the door and you see the patch of the rash and you're like, eh, it's probably gonna be unilateral lateral thoracic, even before you get up close and see what the spots are made of. It tends to resolve without recurrence. It spreads on one side of the body for a week or two and then will sometimes disseminate a little bit, but it's usually always more predominant on one side than the other. And um, HHV7 has been reported with this one Oops, as well. Now, there is something that it should always be in your differential for unilateral lateral thoracic exanthem. Does anybody know what else can give you this big patchy scaly area? usually starting in one axilla and then kind of spreading from there. Like, like in striatus? So striatus can be unilateral, so that's good. It tends to be, it, it can be patchy, but it's usually more linear. I'm thinking of something else that will sometimes start with a, with this patchy redness, and then you'll start getting little pearly bumps in it. I see it start under the armpits a lot. Linear IGA. No, I think I heard it. 
molluscum. I've been burned before. So one of my pearls is molluscum, for being as, as common as it is, will burn you, burn you, burn you. It's burned me I don't know how many different ways. One of which is somebody comes in and I'd say, oh, it's unilateral lateral thoracic exanthem, yada, yada, it'll go away. And then the parents you know, come back in and they're like, well, you, we, we, did, we just didn't realize it was going to get all these little pink bumps in it. But, you know, and I'm like, oh, great, you know, so. Um, because molluscum sometimes will, will initially break out with that molluscum dermatitis before you actually get the individual molluscum papules. So um, just be aware of that. So what I do, I, you know, I'm sure my residents think I'm insane anymore, but like you, you, you do this long enough, you start second guessing almost everything because you've seen like the, that one instance where, where you know, the classic thing was, no, was not classic. So you know, I always tell families, well, let me know if any little pearly bumps or water warts or something like that come up in the area because sometimes we'll get fooled. But um, that's the, the big one. Um, now, so... This is a slide that I put in just for discussion purposes because um, this is a condition that very often gets called erythema multiforme. And in, when I have a little bit longer in these talks, I'll present this case as a case and ask people what they think it is. In the interest of time, I decided to just, just kind of hash through it. But I've seen this exact syndrome called erythema multiforme by our pediatricians, by other dermatologists, and things like that. And it is not. And so I present, bless you, I present it to you guys for just take-home thought purposes. Um, so I, I was taught to diagnose this as a serum sickness-like reaction. This is this syndrome where you've got a toddler usually, you know, 16-month-old, 18-month-old, up to, you know, 24, 36 months, who has uh, fever for a few days, breaks out in this red rash that starts spreading out. Individual lesions spread and get really dusky in the center. Sometimes they'll, you know, if they're walking, they'll stop walking. They'll get swelling at their joints. And everybody, including the parents, rightfully freak out because they look so bad. And um, this will very often get called erythema multiforme. I've seen these kids get hospitalized, seen them treated with all sorts of stuff. What this is, is a systemic inflammatory response to something. The most common scenario for this is the kid had no titus, was given antibiotics, and then this rash breaks out. But once, we've once we sort of learn to appreciate this sort of very specific clinical scenario, and it is pretty specific, I mean, once you're sort of aware of it, you'll realize that these kids, they, they all are kind of the same. Um, the, at least half or more of these kids, especially in this day and age, where not all kids with ear infections get antibiotics, have never had any preceding drug exposure. All they have is preceding viral something. So I think of this condition as sort of a, a type of viral exanthem. Now, it's probably not just one virus that can do it, but this is a, a, a sort of a hypersensitivity reaction related to their preceding viral infection. And a lot like Epstein-Barr virus infections, um, you know, Epstein-Barr virus infections, only about 10% of primary Epstein-Barr infections get a rash. But if, you, if you've got Epstein-Barr and I give you amoxicillin or ampicillin, about 90% of those patients will break out in a rash. I think it's sort of a similar phenomenon with this one. I think this is a situation where you've got a primary viral infection that then adding the antibiotics in is sort of potentiates the development of the rash. And there were some antibiotics. C-chlor was the classic one that would, that would do this, but it's not you know, not around. So anyways, I call this a serum sickness-like reaction. They, the kids look really significantly, you know, ill, but when you walk in the door, they look bad, but then it, their skin looks bad, but the kids almost always look fine. They're playing and they're bubbly and they're babbling and they're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and, you know, for as bad as their skin looks, they seem like very, very well, and they, they are. They tend to, it tends to blow over just after four or five days, if not sooner. So um, I just wanted you to be aware of this particular clinical scenario because um, it's one that it's one that you'll see, and certainly one that in my my time we've you know I've learned a lot about. So and getting back to the you know being taught things by by uh, by infections and viral infections. So this is a patient that I saw who I initially diagnosed with bug bites because the patient comes in and says. I'm getting these really itchy areas on my feet. And you know, you look and you've got these, these sort of erythematous 
these sort of erythematous, swollen spots, you know, little papules, some of them kind of coalescing, and they look for all the world like mosquito bites or something like that. Well, then they, they spread, and they end up on the hands, and this is a little washed out, but you notice this, this child's mom, who happens to be a physician, says, well, isn't that kind of targetoid? I mean, it's red on the outside and white in the middle and then red in the center. And I'm like, well, it is kind of targetoid. And the mom's like, well, why isn't this erythema multiforme? And I'm like, well, because it's not erythema multiforme. But, um, and, I, and, I, you know, and I'm like, well, I think it's going to go away in a few days. And then it got worse and got worse. And then this kid's mom says, who all, the mom is also my wife, says, <laughs> says, don't you think we ought to get a second opinion? <laughs> and I said, you know, come on, have a little faith. But I, didn't, I did not know what this is. So you, this is my third kid. So you now have seen all my kids. Because uh, like any good pediatric dermatologist, you got to get your kids in the talks. They're like fodder but, um, for, for material. But um, so let's see. This is some more of her eruption. Notice sort of the targetoid nature to some of those but really juicy, really almost pseudovesicular, but, um, but with a bit of a targetoid appearance. I was, you know, I was like, well, it's not erythema multiforme, but that some of them are kind of erythema multiforme-like. And it, it, I'm, you know, I'm slow to learn, but you know, we'll, 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 I'll explain in a minute. So then the thing that was really striking was one of our pulmonologists sent me these pictures of his son literally the same week. And his son had this rash that he'd broken out on his cheeks with these bright red papules on elbows and hands and on feet, legs, buttocks, nothing on his trunk, and bright red papules on his cheeks like this. And I said, boy, that, 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 the, the, the papules on his, on his uh, hands and legs look just like my daughter. And, but then, and then the stuff on the cheeks looks like giannotti Crosti syndrome, really. And I said, you know, and he says, well, you know, he's been perfectly healthy. The only thing that's been going on, all this started after he went to see a dermatologist who put canthrone on his molluscum. Oh, and by the way, his molluscum are gone. And so what this is, what, and my daughter, by the way, this is when the, the, the little light went on. My daughter also had molluscum at the time. And so what this is, is a, another form of molluscum exanthem. So this is yet another way that molluscum has humbled me over the years, but taught me something. So molluscum is a pox virus, and pox viruses have been reported to cause erythema multiforme, or if you, if you really dig into the literature, there's not that many reports of it, erythema multiforme-like rashes. And several of the reports are just co clones of my daughter's rash. Or this, and they're also, uh, molluscum is also reported to cause a Giannotti Crosti-like rash. It's a minority of cases, but maybe 5 to 10%. The NYU group um, put out a publication not too long ago sort of summarizing this, out of, at least out of their uh, group of patients. So the point is, these are all different spectrums of the rashes that molluscum can cause. So those little pearly umbilicated papules that we're so used to seeing in clinic, you know, you know they can cause molluscum dermatitis and give you that eczema. You know they can get... Um, inflamed due to loss of immune tolerance and look like a boil or an abscess, or they can get secondarily infected and be a true boil or abscess. But they can also cause erythema multiforme-like reactions, Giannotti Crosti-like reactions, and a, and a variety of things. Typically, these, the, these secondary molluscum exanthems herald disappearance of the virus. It's like a switch flips and the immune system activates and all the molluscum go away. And both these kids cleared their molluscum and that's been that. So anyhow. And um, just in the whole, uh, uh, I, don't, I think this is right near the end, and then I'll take questions. But again, my take-home point with a lot of this is that we've got our tried-and-true viral exanthems, but there are lots of things that are changing. And this is a, um, and so we've got to stay up to date. This is a report from St. Joe, Missouri, which is where I grew up. And um, uh, the, our ID doc there, very um, astute ID doc for being out in, in private practice, noticed he had uh, several patients, several farmers that looked for all the world like they had ehrlichiosis, the tick-borne illness that we're used to seeing um, in Missouri especially. Um, and uh, patients with ehrlichia, we were just having a conversation at our, at our departmental case conference yesterday about it. Patients with ehrlichia have this very typical clinical presentation. 
Um, and, but when you see enough Ehrlichia patients, there are, there's a subset of patients that look for all the world like they have Ehrlichia, but the testing's negative, and they don't respond to the antibiotics that typically treat Ehrlichia, doxy or the like. And in these two farmers from St. Joe, they got hooked up with the CDC and, in fact, isolated a new type of virus that was associated with their illness that they think was causing an Ehrlichia-like illness and may well be tick-borne. So the world, of in, the world of exanthems, the world of the infectious diseases, especially as they relate to the skin, are, they're constantly changing. And with new techniques and new technologies, we're going to get a lot smarter about it. So it merits staying up, up to date on it. So my pearls, uh, in addition to the ones that we've talked about, is just remember that the exanthems can take a variety of forms, and some are very nonspecific. And, and w you've got to be comfortable with that. If anybody's comfortable with sort of, you know, a lot of gray areas, it's those of us that work in dermatology. But be aware of the ones that are specific and um, you know, use that to your patient's advantage. New viruses uh, mean new exanthems and new things to, to look for. The Coxsackie A6 that we talked about at the beginning is a, is a classic one for that, so stay up to date. The old viruses are, uh, hopefully give you classic exanthems, and so you've got to be aware of those. And for any of these, the treatment is almost always supportive. I find um, any of the viral reactions to be very, very difficult to do much with. Even systemic prednisone doesn't usually do much. So you're left really managing their itch um, and using all those skills that you've developed, taking care of uh, the skin with all your other patients to try and get them through until that immune response dies down. And then uh, we talked about the parvo rash. Make sure you counsel parents appropriately. That'll save you some phone calls and a lot of worry. Remember, the serum sickness-like reaction can be, can be probably a vi post-viral thing, but uh, certainly not related to, to a drug. And be aware of what that looks like. And lastly, be very wary because molluscum, simple little molluscum, will humble you no matter how good you think you are. So thanks. Uh, if you have any questions or you need any, my email's on here. Feel free to shoot me an email about this or anything. I appreciate it.